We're going to read the first nine verses of Isaiah 42 as an Old Testament reading, and then we'll turn to our passage in Matthew. I had in mind to read the, the whole chapter of Isaiah 42, but I think the first nine verses will help us focus on what I want to highlight in this sermon. And we want to show the ways in which Christ um, fulfills this prophecy and particularly does so with many of the the words that we find towards the beginning of the chapter. So Isaiah 42, we'll read verses 1 through 9, and then we will turn uh, to our sermon passage for this morning, Matthew chapter 3. Something I want to try to do when we can is have an Old Testament and a New Testament reading as we consider the words of Scripture together. And certainly this is something that makes sense to do in Matthew, as Matthew is continually showing Uh, the ways in which Jesus fulfills the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. So let's hear from Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1 through verse 9. Hear the holy word of God. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, Or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. Till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it. Who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. And if you would, turn then to Matthew chapter 3. The end of that chapter, Matthew chapter 3, if you're using the Pew Bible, is page 1499. Verses 13 through 17, we read of the baptism of Jesus, baptism of our Lord. Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him, and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now. 
An important lesson to learn for students in mathematics, particularly the advanced math classes, pre-calculus and calculus, all of those classes that we enjoy so much at the beginning of, or the end of high school and the beginning of college. An important lesson to learn is that if you show your work, kind of show the path that you go down in order to arrive at your answer, then the teacher can deal much more kindly with you. This was a, a problem that I had. I wasn't a big fan of, of mathematics, always enjoyed history, literature, things like that, but math was not really my thing. I like to try to do as much in my head as I could and just kind of write down things that I felt I needed to remember for the next step. And you begin to realize that uh, your teachers have a reason for emphasizing the show your work, show every single step, because it allows them to deal much more kindly with you. If you've got a long calculus exam and there are only five equations to solve and the exam is worth 100 points, then all of those equations will probably be worth, be worth 20 points each. They can give you 13, 14, 15 points if, even if you don't have the right answer, if you show that you're understanding the concepts allows them to deal much more kindly with you. Otherwise, it's all or nothing. Right? Only the, the only thing they can look at is whether or not you have the right answer. And if you've not showed your work and you have the wrong answer, then uh, you will not receive any points. There's an analogy with this, I believe, to the Christian life. God is our creator. And it ought to concern us very much how we live lives that are pleasing to him. And if we set about that work on our own, it's going to be all or nothing, right? The righteous law of God, that which we in our nature cannot keep, but hypothetically, uh, if we were to try and keep it, we would have to keep it perfectly all of the time, perpetually. To break one of the commandments is to break all of them. But to live in Christ, to abide in him by faith, to be established by him, unites us with the eternal son of God who always has been and always will be pleasing to the father. So we ask this question of how do you live a life that is pleasing to God? Everything that we think about it must flow forth in being united to the one who is pleasing to the father. And faith is that central and lifelong virtue that allows us to be pleasing to God because it unites us. It gives us union with Jesus Christ. Christ, in that way, is all that we need. This passage testifies to us of that very truth. Jesus is the one in whom the Father is pleased. And so all that God is doing in redemptive history, all that God is doing in Matthew, all that John the Baptist is doing, is pointing to this all-glorious Savior. So we'll look at the testimony of three things. The first thing, the testimony of John's ministry and John's baptizing of Jesus. Secondly, we'll see the testimony of Jesus' own obedience. And finally, we'll see the testimony of the triune God. First, the testimony of John's baptism of Jesus. Jesus being baptized by John here testifies that John's message and his ministry are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They point to him. Now John's message and his ministry is fairly simple. It's fairly straightforward. Uh, everyone needs to repent. Everyone needs to be cleansed. In, in a sense, he is dealing with the question of how, or, how can you become pleasing to God? 
Well, it needs to begin with repentance and there needs to be cleansing. John's ministry was for a specific time and a a specific uh, purpose. He was, was the Elijah figure who was to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And he's looking towards the people of God, towards Israel at that time. And he's saying, regardless of your background, regardless of your circumstances, you need to enter into this life of repentance. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he calls them uh, those who seemed as though they had an outward righteousness. And Jesus will deal with that all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. One of our misconceptions is, is that when Jesus says you must have righteousness like that of the Pharisees, that he's saying you, must, you, you need to have this really high and complete righteousness. What Jesus is saying there is you need to have inward along with outward righteousness. The Pharisees only had outward righteousness. But John calls even them to repent who seem to have this outward keeping of the law. Uh, and all those in Israel, right? it's not just calling those outside of the covenant people to come to his ministry, to repent and to be baptized. It's everyone. His very life is, is a, a testament of the kind of thing that his message declares. He's out in the wilderness. Uh, he's not dressed up in a way that makes him impressive. Going to leave everything behind. Come out from those things which we, in which we tend to trust. Come out from them. And trust in the cleansing that repentance gives to you. So his message is one of repentance, but also of revelation. Jesus comes to him, and John, very naturally probably, resists, tries to deter him. Jesus comes to him to be baptized. John resists him, likely because of the message he is preaching. Repent. Be baptized, be cleansed of your sins. Uh, One commentator puts it in a kind of an interesting way. The Pharisees were not worthy of John's baptism, but now his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. But Jesus responds to John by saying, it is fitting, it is proper that we do this. This is the right thing to do. And that tells us that Whatever John is doing, his ministry, his message, the baptism of John, is leading to Jesus Christ. It finds its greatest fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the baptism and the message of John. If you are to live a life that is pleasing to God, John's message is saying you need to repent, you need to be cleansed, and a life of repentance and a life of cleansing points us to Jesus Christ. A life of repentance must be centered around this Savior. A life of cleansing must in some way be centered on this glorious Savior. People have asked the question whether or not John's baptism is the same as Christian baptism. There's actually an account in the book of Acts where those who had received John's baptism are baptized in the name of the triune God. So they're not one and the same, but certainly it does tell us something about Christian baptism. There's uh, an aspect of cleansing there, the need to be cleansed from sin. And insofar as John's baptism is fulfilled in Jesus, or it points to Jesus, it highlights that which we learn in our Christian baptism, that we can only be cleansed in Jesus Christ. So our own catechism says this, how are you admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to you? 
And the answer is this. In this way, that Christ appointed this external washing with water and adding to it his promise that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul, that is from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water. As surely as the water touches the head of the one being baptized, so just as surely are those who trust in Christ cleansed of their sin. So this is the testimony of John. You want to live a life that is pleasing to God? It needs to be a life of repentance. It needs to be a life that has experienced cleansing. And all of those things only happen in and through this Savior to whom he is pointing. The testimony of John's baptism. Next we have the testimony of Jesus' obedience. Jesus says that it is proper to fulfill all righteousness. It is proper that he be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? And most of the time when we encounter phrases in the scriptures that uh, are not immediately clear, you're going to find a whole uh, host of things written on it. So a lot of ink has been spilled about Jesus' words that we need to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus' intention here is likely much more simple than many people have made it to be. Uh, to fulfill all righteousness really means to do what God requires. Uh, that's what Jesus is saying. And so what he is saying is that he is wanting to show that he is submitting to the will of his Father. He is going to make his life and his ministry here as he sets out on his ministry... He is going to make it about the will of his Father. Why did he come? To glorify God in the salvation of sinners. So he is taking on the role of a mediator. And he is taking on the role of servant. He's saying, I'm coming, I'm submitting to this. I'm receiving this baptism in order to show that I am willing to do what my Father requires. In so doing, he takes on the role not only of a mediator, but that of a servant. Jesus joyfully shows us the heart of submission, the heart of a servant. This is what we see in Isaiah chapter 42, what we read this morning. This uh, prophecy is about the Messiah who is to come. And it begins in verse 1 as we read, Behold, my servant! Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. God's Messiah will be a servant. The one who will accomplish salvation will be one who takes on the role of a servant. Now, how do we outwardly see that role of a servant being fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled through obedience. Obedience and submission. That's what a good servant engages in. In Isaiah here, chapter 42, we see it's not just that the Messiah, the Savior, will be a servant, but that he will be a suffering servant. Jesus willingly embraces suffering in order to accomplish redemption for his people. And we see this as part of, of Matthew's overall context, right? In the the context of Matthew is showing us Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the servant of humble sinners. Jesus has come to be the servant of sinners. That role 
will be put on display or put to the test in the very next passage. Jesus will be led out into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. And the devil will uh, take that role of servant and put it to the test. He'll say, well, if you are the son of God, then you ought to live uh, according to all of the comforts that would attend to your current situation. So turn these stones into bread. If you really have this place of authority, use your place of authority in order to gain all of the things that would give you comfort. And Jesus rejects those temptations and he shows that willingly he continues to be a servant. But why? What does the role of a servant do or what does it show? What's the importance of him being a servant? It is is what had to be done in order to redeem sinners. Jesus had to submit to the Father's will in order to save those who had not submitted to God's will. Jesus had to come under the law in order to redeem those who were cursed under the law. He had to be made like us in every way yet without sin that he might save and redeem those like whom he had become. Let's think a little bit deeper about this role of servant. It's something to be grateful for, right? That Jesus is a servant and because of that he shows us that he is a savior. So it's something to be grateful for, but it's also something to follow by example. Jesus shows us what the best human life is all about. It's about being a servant. It's about submitting to the Father's will. It's about falling under the authorities that are rightfully over us. So whatever Jesus prioritizes is right and it is good. It's better than any other path. This is something we have to understand about Jesus. A lot of times we look at his life and there's a lot of things that nobody would want to have or desire to have. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He lived uh, through great suffering and trial. Uh, He was mocked by many. Uh, He was sort of in the limelight and always being challenged. Uh, He died an excruciating death at a a very young age. And many people would look at that life and say, well, what would you want about that life? Something we have to remember is that Jesus lived the best human life that has ever been lived. Not just kind of in an objective law obedience sense. He lived the life of the fullest joy that has ever been experienced because of the communion he had with the Father. Because of the fellowship that he enjoyed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the point is, Jesus shows us what human life ought to be about. Not about forging our own path. Not about finding our own meaning and purpose, but it is a life of submission. If you are a creature of God, if he has created you, then that means the best life that you can live is one of submission. This is something that we have to learn many different ways in life. We grow up as children and God places us under the authority of uh, parents who uh, are to exercise that authority rightly. And children obey God as they rightly obey their parents. All of us in the church, we are placed under authority. And Christians obey God when they submit to the authority placed over them in the church. Citizens, the same thing holds true. When we uh, submit to that which is rightfully placed over us, we are uh, acting out our obedience to God. And then, of course, each and every day, we live 
before God. So Jesus puts the good life on display, which is the life of a servant. One more thing that I'd like to point out before we move on is John's astonishment. John's astonishment as Jesus comes to him and receives this baptism. You want me to baptize you? He says, you must baptize me. And the analogy there for us uh, that I think is fruitful for us to consider is that when we come face to face with the wonder of the gospel, that the Son of God takes on the role of a servant in order to become the servant of sinners, it should make us stand in awe. The themes of wonder, of awe, of astonishment ought to be central to how we think about our Savior. If you understand something of the glory from which Jesus came, then it should make you stand in awe that he receives baptism in this passage. It should make you stand in awe that he takes on a human nature. It should make you stand in awe that he willingly embraces suffering. This is where Jesus' obedience serves to give us assurance of our own standing before God. How can we be accepted before God? Because he obeys in all of the ways in which we cannot do in and of ourselves. This is obedience that we can hold on and rejoice in all of our lives. One American theologian said on his deathbed, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. His obedience testifies to us that a life pleasing to God begins in and through this Savior. Isaiah 42 also says, He will not grow faint. If we tried to establish justice ourselves, we would grow faint. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. So the testimony of his obedience shows us a life pleasing to him is centered on Christ. Life pleasing to God is centered on Christ. And that brings us to the last consideration today. The testimony of the Father and the Spirit or God's own witness that all of this is pointing to Jesus Christ as our only path to live a life that is pleasing to God. Immediately after Jesus is baptized, we read that the heavens are opened. And in the context of all of Scripture, that usually means that something very serious is about to take place. It usually is going to be connected to the judgment of God. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. The heavens being opened is, is usually going to be connected in some way to God's judgment. In Genesis 7, for instance, the flood and Noah, the heavens are opened and the flood waters come. And the flood narrative is important for us to consider here at the baptism of Jesus. We see that the Spirit descends on Jesus as a dove. So we're here, we have the presence of the water because of the baptism. And in 1 Peter, baptism is connected to the flood as well. We have the dove descending upon Jesus, which reminds us of after the flood, as the waters are receiving, Noah sends the dove out. First, it, it returns to Noah with an olive branch, uh, a symbol of peace, and then it does not return at all. And the dove itself is somewhat a symbol of peace. It's a, 
It's a peaceful bird. So you have all of these things coming together. The waters, just like the flood. The heavens are being opened, just like in the flood. You have the, the, the dove descending upon Jesus, just like we read in Genesis and the flood. But what is missing from the baptism of Jesus? Well, it's the destruction of the wicked. We don't have the destruction of the wicked like we see in the flood. And so what do we learn from that? Well, it shows us that in Jesus, in the suffering servant, in the obedient one, in this willing sufferer, we may escape the wrath and judgment of God that is so justly deserved because of our sin. Jesus is such a glorious Savior that he brings us through those judgment waters and he deals tenderly and compassionately with the sinner. We're going to see in the message or in the ministry of Jesus how his compassion compels him. It brings him out to deal with the sinner, to touch and to heal and to cleanse. This fulfills for us again another image in Isaiah 42 in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. See, in Jesus, and only in Jesus, can any creature have this experience of having the approval of God and peace in his presence and escaping his wrath. And he does so tenderly. A bruised reed he will not break. Do you feel bruised? Do you feel that this life has you in a place where you almost can't go on. Jesus will not use his strength to snap you in two. Do you feel that you are a faintly burning wick? That your faith is so weak that there's just kind of the smoke coming up from the wick of a candle and someone could easily just reach out with their fingers and snuff it out. His promise, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick. He will not snuff out. Jesus will not reach his hand to snuff out the faintly burning wick of a humble sinner. He revives us. He brings the flame back to life. He heals the bruised reed so that it may bring forth fruit again. He is a tender and a compassionate and a loving savior. One of the greatest works from all of the the Puritan canon is Richard Sibb's The Bruised Reed which harkens back, of course, to the image we're considering. And in that work, he says this, God knows that we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requires no more than what he gives. And he gives what he requires. And he accepts what he gives. What does it mean to live by the grace of God? What does it mean to have a tender and compassionate Savior? What does it mean to have a merciful God who deals with us on the basis of grace, what does he require? Well, he requires only that which he would give. And what does he give? He gives exactly what he requires. What's required? Well, what's required is obedience and faithfulness. But that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And then what does he accept? He accepts what he gives. Whatever he gives to us, that is what he accepts. This is the glory of our saving God. This is the glory of a tender and compassionate Savior. A gracious prophet a merciful high priest, and a meek king. And so the father speaks from heaven as Jesus is baptized. And he says, this is my beloved son. In him I am well 
pleased. There's actually some way that we can take this, probably alluding into eternity past. In him, I was well pleased. There has never been a time where God the Son was not pleasing to the Father. And so, how is there to be achieved a state wherein those who by fallen nature are sinners and displeasing to God, but become pleasing to him? Or to put it more simply, how are sinners to become pleasing to God? It must be in union with the natural son of God. We must be united to this natural son of God who is himself ever and always pleasing to the father. If we were to experience God's favor, then the one who already had God's favor had to come and submit to the law, submit to the father's will. Submit to the curse of the law to redeem us out of our sin and misery. To bring us into a place of blessing and favor and the pleasure of God. This is why the doctrine of election in scripture is given to us in the context of being in Christ. In him we were predestined as it says in Ephesians chapter 1. So the only path to pleasing God is to be united by faith all of your life. To the one who by nature is pleasing to the Father. That's the testimony that God gives to us at the baptism of Jesus. The Father says he he is pleasing unto me. And if you are to be pleasing unto me, unite yourself to this one. The Spirit descends on him peacefully to show us that peace can be had and experienced through him. We have the testimony of Jesus' obedience to remind us that our standing before God is on the basis of what he has done. We have the testimony of John the Baptist saying all of this is pointing. A life of repentance, a life of cleansing. It's pointing to this one. So just a couple of comments then as we close. Because the question of living a God-pleasing life goes beyond just our justification and trusting in Christ. But to live a God-pleasing life, first we have to understand that it begins by being united to the Son of God By faith. Here we have the joys of of being justified and adopted. To be justified, we trust in Christ and your sins are washed away. You're accounted as righteous because of that obedience of the Son. The joys of the doctrine of adoption. That God has welcomed you into the family uh, through this faithful Savior. Right? Uh, We are found in him not having a righteousness of our own. But then... Let a life that is pleasing to God, let it not just only begin there, but let it continue always by faith. We are to continually live a life of dependence. So as we think about each and every day, how do I please God? Don't return to the strategy of doing it by your own strength and by your own power. Live each day by faith. We read in our Reformed Confessions that all good works must proceed from faith. That's the only way that they can be pleasing unto God. Uh, A verse that I like to reference a lot is Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Where there we're exhorted to walk in a a manner worthy of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him. This is what it means to live in the covenant of grace. That as we're trusting in that Savior who is pleasing to God, that which we do, which is still imperfect even though it is spirit-empowered and oriented to the glory of God, that which we do is accepted unto God. 
So we should have uh, no ideas of Christian nihilism about our lives. It's sort of, we're saved by faith in Christ, but then all that we do is just nothing. It's terrible. No, that which we do by faith in Christ and empowered by the Spirit becomes pleasing to God. And our lives ought to be about living a life by faith that because we're united to the one who is pleasing to him, we can live in ways that are pleasing to him as well. God is pleased to accept our imperfect works. And so we always work by faith in Christ because we stand in him. And then, so let it begin by faith, being united to him. Let it continue by faith, living a life of dependence. And then let this understanding of the Christian life help you to see more and more how much sin puts things out of joint. If you begin to understand the significance of being united to Christ and how being united to him brings to you the favor and the pleasure of the Father, that's, this, that's the only way that we can stand in, in a way that is pleasing to God and live in a way that is pleasing to God. Then uh, how uh, out of joint is sin which brings the fatherly dis- uh, God's fatherly displeasure upon us. So we're united to the one who is always and ever pleasing to God and then we engage ourselves in that which brings upon us God's fatherly displeasure. So if sin brings God's fatherly displeasure upon us, then how out of accord is it with your standing in Christ? So pray that God would help you see more and more the offensiveness of sin and how it goes against the flow of who he has made us to be in Christ. We become pleasing to him in Christ. So how could we ever live and continue in that which brings God's fatherly displeasure? Sin brings things out of joint in terrible ways. So learn then to hate sin to fight it, and to flee it. But how do you do that? It begins by exercising faith in Christ, depending not upon yourself, but trusting in the one who is always pleasing unto him. Exercising faith in Christ unto all of the diligence. If you read the scriptures, you'll find we're commended to diligence and effort. But it always happens in the context of faith. That is the way in which we set about a life that is pleasing uh, unto our God. So to return to our first illustration, to show your work. That was the only way that you could have satisfactory work in the advanced math classes. The, The teacher can deal much more graciously with you. If you would bear with me to just allow that analogy to be brought into the Christian life. If we're united to Jesus Christ, how glorious is it that it allows God to deal that that much more graciously with us in the context of his covenant of grace that what does he require he gives what he requires and he accepts what he gives to live in the glory of the grace of our triune and merciful and gracious god it is only in christ we can be set on this path living a life that is pleasing to god let's pray and so great god we thank you and praise you for this word We ask that you uh, would cause it to bear fruit in our lives and allow us to be filled with with worship and wonder and awe and astonishment as John the Baptist was, that that Jesus came and, and submitted to these things. He who is eternal God and 
eternally glorious. Uh, cause us to, to live this week in, in the light of, of this word. And give you all of the glory. And keep us ever in faith, united to Christ, abiding in him. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.